if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted himself and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. God. You can be seated and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. There's Miss Robin waving in the back. Um, now, not you new sixth graders, you're in here. You've got to suffer with us. Uh, we're glad you're in here. I know uh, Pastor Jason talked briefly about that and promotion and that, what an exciting thing that is. Um, the rest of you, if you haven't already, would you open your Bibles and turn to Philippians 2 and then also in John 13. Uh, maybe you put a tab there or uh, a finger there. And we'll bounce a little bit back and forth between those two things. We've been working through the, uh, of John's gospel for several months now and have a few months left to go. And last week, uh, Jason actually preached on this text, which should give me, yes, should give me the freedom to move to John 14. Um, and if you were here, uh, and I say this in, in, in all honesty, if you were here and you heard Jason preach, um, maybe one of the best sermons preached on this stage in a really long time. He killed it. Uh, he was doing some like Quentin Tarantino stuff, man, like the application first, then you, the twist, man, you, you did it. Um, I encourage you, if you didn't see that, uh, hear that, that you would go and listen to that sermon, and I think it would maybe even um, set up this one a little bit more. I thought and prayed um, long and hard this week about what God would have us uh, study and listen to. And I'm so thankful for God's Word. Aren't you thankful for God's Word? That it, Not only did He give us His Spirit that gives us comfort and gives us guidance and discernment and leads us into truth, but He gave us His Word so that we wouldn't be just walking in life through the gray uh, wondering what God says about things. He gave us His Word to guide us, and I'm so thankful for that. Nearly uh, 20 years ago on September 11th, 2001, I was coming up on the anniversary. We're coming up now on the anniversary of the World Trade Towers. And I remember, as many of you uh, who were alive during that time, um, you remember where you were when you saw the news, watching the news and seeing the towers fall, and it was a very unsettling and emotional time for us. And I remember even in that, as it happened, it's... Uh, in my apartment, uh, Ashley and I were dating. She was in nursing school. So uh, I was trying to call her on my big uh, Zach Moore cell phone, um, trying to see, you know, what is, uh, 
It's a contextual joke, the Zach Morris thing. It's, uh... And I don't know why I was trying to call her. I guess we deal with grief best in, in moments uh, with the people that we love. So we wrestle with that. We're trying to understand that. I remember I was serving uh, as a youth pastor at a church here in town. And that Sunday we came together and I, I mean, packed the place out. I saw people I hadn't seen in a really long time. I'm introducing them. Hey, I'm the youth pastor. They're like, oh, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a lifelong member. And I'm like, oh, I've never met you before. Um, glad, good to see you. And uh, it really started this. If you, were, if you were in a faith family, a faith community at that time, it really started this renewal and uh, revival in the church. And it, and it brought people together. It really did. In a way that, that lasted several months. I know uh, the church that I was serving at, we saw this incredible move of God. Because some external thing shook us a little bit. And it, and it brought us together. It revealed the things that we had been trusting in that weren't really trustworthy. And so when, fast forward 20 years, when the pandemic started, um, we were actually at the beach when, you, when we got the news, and we, try, we, tried to, we tried to book the beach house for another week since we had nowhere to go. Um, that didn't work, but when we got the, we were, you know, of course, reading the news all that week, and one of the friends that was with us was telling us all the bad that could come of this. Uh, she's an Enneagram 6, so we were kind of dismissing some of the negativity, um, and I brought up, you know what, this, this could be this generation's 9-11 moment where, where the church rallies together in unity. But we didn't. No, it just brought more and more division. The enemy working just found more and more ways to divide the church Instead of driving us to our only hope being in Jesus, we found more reasons to divide. Started with the question of essential workers and who's essential and not, and then the treatments if you actually got the disease, and then we talked about the masks, and then the death of George Floyd, and we saw racial division and crisis like I've never seen it. Of course, many of these issues have been brewing just under the surface for some time, and now with all the other pressures just in this big like crock pot, it just kind of surfaced to the top. And then we had riots and then Black Lives Matter movements and then protests. And it didn't stop there. We found more and more ways to divide. Then we argued about the solutions and then the vaccines. And then we debated critical race theory. And here we are once again talking about masks. And who knows what will be next? I, I really don't. As it relates to masks and vaccines, and I, I have no idea. I, I hate the masks, honestly, but certainly willing to wear them if it makes others feel more comfortable. I would love more data on the vaccine. I can't fathom a way that God is somehow going to bring centuries of hatred and racism back together where we could love and honor each other in such a way that it would be an aroma of worship. I have no idea how we're going to do that. I do know this one thing. When you return to the Word of God, He makes one thing supreme. One thing. And that's His great commission that He gave us. That's the mission. The mission, friends, has not changed. 2020 didn't change the mission. 2021 didn't change the mission. The mission is still central and foremost. Mission, the mission, greater than smaller movements. 
I read this week that 155,000 people die every day in this big world of ours. Seven billion something people, 155,000. About half of them, the mission organization, the IBM, has said probably has never heard the gospel. Half. That's one every second. Die without Christ. One every second. And here we are in the Western church, and we've been given, I mean, if you visit some of these places that are, that are far, third world countries, just to have the word of God is such an amazing thing. And then to have a place that we can gather and worship, such an amazing privilege. And I think the enemy really, really has us. What does is, what is Paul use in the book of Galatians? Who has bewitched you? Who has, who has taught you to focus on the other thing? The mission is the thing. You know, there's some things in Scripture that make a lot of common sense to me. You know, where Scripture says how lazy people will likely go hungry. They don't want to work, they're not going to eat. That makes sense to me. You don't get out there and work. Maybe it makes more sense because my dad was Larry Allen, and he may have quoted that all the time. I don't know. Or how the Bible tells us that arguing with a fool is like spitting in the wind. That makes sense to me. I've done both, spit in the wind and argued with a fool. Neither of them worked out well for me. Or like the principle of sowing and reaping. I understand that. I can't expect to reap tomorrow what I didn't sow today. That makes sense to me. You want your kid to grow up honoring God as a teenager. You teach them when they're three and four and five years old. You sow seeds of truth in their life. That, that, makes, that makes sense to me. I can't expect to wake up next month as this world-renowned cellist if I've never learned how to play the cello. Um, so thousands of hours of playing the cello, and then maybe one day, that's what I'll end up. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. You understand that. But there's some things in Scripture that don't make sense to me. They don't appeal to my common sense. Let's call these things kingdom sense. And friends, kingdom sense is always greater than common sense. Kingdom sense. Biblical thinking, always greater than logical thinking. Now, logical thinking is good in most settings, but there are some settings where kingdom thinking must take precedence. I listed just a few of these. We could talk for 10 hours about these, like where Jesus told us to love our enemies. Naturally, I don't want to love my enemy. I want to pulverize my enemy. It's just not something I want to do to love them. Or how Jesus tells us to bless those that curse me. I don't want to bless those that curse me. I want to punch them in the throat. That's what I want to do. But kingdom sense, right, greater than common sense. Or even as simple as Matthew 18 tells me if someone has offended me or I've offended them, I'm supposed to go to them and seek reconciliation. Now, I naturally don't want to do that. I want to gossip them, slander them. I want everyone else to know that they're a terrible person and they deserve to get a flat tire every Monday for the rest of their life. That's what I want, that's what I want to happen. That's common sense, but that's not kingdom sense. Or where it tells us to forgive people. Now forgiveness appeals to my common sense a little bit because I know I've done wrong and need forgiveness. But I'm kind of like the disciples who are asking Jesus, Jesus, seven times, that okay? That's really generous. That dude did that seven times. <clears throat> Can that be the limit of my forgiveness? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Seventy times seven as a way to say, you just have a posture of forgiveness for the rest of your life. 
makes no common sense, but it does make kingdom sense. <clears throat> this is one of these things that we're talking about today, and certainly in, the, in, Jesus, in uh, John 13, passage that Ann read a few minutes ago, that in humility I should value others above myself. Nope. I don't like that one bit. I like myself. And I don't want to value other people above myself. Now, as a parent, I get it a little bit, right? My babies, when we had babies, always pooping in the diaper in the middle of the night and crying, and I need to change them. I get it, right? I need to put others above myself. Let's be honest, though. In the middle of the night when the baby was crying, I didn't even do that. I just acted like I was asleep until Ashley woke up and went and changed the baby. I may have changed a couple diapers. But you get that, right? They're a baby. And in humility, they can't even, they can't even clean themselves. I'm going to go over and help serve them. I'm going to consider their needs above my own needs. And then the author, Paul, the author of Philippians, would go on to say this in verse 3. He tells us that this is not some just idealistic statement, but it's actually possible for anyone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Sorry, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. You can, actually, you can actually have the mind of Christ right here and now. You don't have to wait till life in eternity. You can, you can be clothed with the mind of Christ now. This is yours in Christ Jesus. We can actually take on this mind of Christ, and in humility, we can consider others more important than ourselves. Not even does it tell us that we can, but it tells us that we should. It doesn't say in verse 5, consider having this mind among yourselves. It says, have this mind. This is a posture that we have to take. And when you look at humility, no one ever feels like being humble. At least no one that I've ever met. Humility is a posture you have to willingly take, like Jesus with the disciples' feet. A posture that Jesus had to willingly take. He starts the passage here in, in chapter 2, Philippians 2, like the setup. If there's any encouragement in Christ, has anyone ever been encouraged by Christ? Okay. If there's any comfort in love, have any of you ever been comforted by love, the love of the Heavenly Father, love from someone else, love came from God? If you've ever been comforted in love, okay, identify. Any participation with the Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit, capital S, ever comforted you, ever sustained you, ever led you to truth? Any affection and sympathy? Is, is there anything in that old cold heart of yours, Paul's asking? Any affection, any sympathy? Then complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he goes into the little hymn. Most theologians believe this was a song of the early church. 
We don't see it in the Psalms, so it wasn't a Jewish song, but likely the early church, maybe even there at Philippi, maybe it was one of, maybe it was one of uh, Paul's poetry that he, that he just jotted down and they began to sing, to get, sing together. You know, like Billy Graham always had the I surrender all at the end of his crusades. It was just the thing, I surrender all. Maybe this was the song that, that they would sing as Paul would preach. I, I, I don't know, but having this mind among yourselves, again, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Notice it didn't say that he felt like being humble. He humbled himself being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, when you choose humility, what happens then? God's the one who exalts you. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He gives us a little insight of what's coming, that there is a day when every knee will bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, even the text brings up this picture of the cross. This is the ultimate picture of the humility and scandalous love of Jesus for us. That he would go to the cross on our behalf. That he would take upon himself my sin in exchange for my nasty, filthy sin. You know what he would give me in return? Righteousness. Cleanliness. Holiness. That I would be made right with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And there's no bones about it, friends. This is what I want you to believe. This is, this is the hope of all eternities, that we would place our faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus takes our sin upon himself in return, gives us abundant, overflowing, eternal life with him, both here and now and in eternity. <clears throat> but maybe the penult penultimate picture of this found in Scripture it was one of our vocabulary words this week in the household, penultimate, next to ultimate. The passage Jason spoke of last week, Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It's just such a beautiful picture of the scandalous humility and love of our Savior. Jason talked about it being a disgusting job, and certainly no one wanted to do that job. When I was 14, I had a job that no one wanted to do. I had to take out the trash at a daycare that was connected to our church. It was terrible. Still, it was the worst. I might vomit on stage any minute just thinking about it. It was the worst job I ever had. There were 16 classrooms, all with the most horrendous smells in them you even thought of. You know, 40 diapers mixed with baby food and the nachos the workers ate that day or whatever it was. And at the end of the day, I'd have to go in there, and they had this little trash can, diaper genie thing that had been kind of slid underneath the, underneath the counter. And so all the smells, it kind of smelled good. I was like, oh, this is going to be okay. And I'd pull it out, and I would take the ears of that trash bag, as you do, and I would tie them together real quick. And as soon as I did that, this waft of disgustingness would, like, approach my nostrils, and I would just try not to hurl everywhere. I think I seriously have some PSD. PTSD from that as I think about it. No one wants that job. I got paid $5.15 an hour. No one wanted this job. No one wanted to wash feet. 
No servants were present. The disciples wanted nothing to do with the job. As a matter of fact, the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest. They're certainly not choosing a position of humility. However, because as they reclined at the table, as they would recline probably on their, on, on, uh, on their side, their feet would stick out. It would actually be, be close to the food. They would eat there kind of on the ground. And so for sanitary and ceremonial reasons, you had to wash feet before you could eat. Certainly at a, at a holiday kind of meal like this and a holy, the holy day of, um, that, that they were celebrating of Passover, certainly you would have to do that. And so the disciples are arguing about, I'm not going to do it, you're not going to. This was such a disgusting job that, um, that if you were a Roman slave, the law forbid your master from making you do this job. That's how disgusting it was. And you can kind of see them all there, can't you? Just around the table, whispering to each other. I think this is what brought up the discussion of who's the greatest. Hey, Peter, you should go wash feet, man. You're kind of like the leader guy. I ain't doing that, man. That's disgusting. And did you see what Thaddeus stepped in this morning? Nah. I'm not doing it. So is there bickering between one another? It's the most incredible scene to me. Jesus stands up. When all the other military leaders were waving banners in victory, Jesus said, you know what my banner's going to be? It's going to be a towel and a basin. As a matter of fact, I'm not even going to stand. I'm going to kneel. And I'm going to serve these people. And in that moment, we saw the creator serving the creation. Think about that. The creator serving the creation. Colossians tells us that it was in him and through him that everything that was made was made. That means that Jesus opened his mouth and everything that had ever been made was made in that moment. The creation that he made, the water that he invented in a basin and he begins to wash their feet. But not just the creator serving his creation, I wish we had time to go in that, but a leader serving his followers. This is no team of all-stars. They were not the best and brightest available. There were no philosophers on the team. For the most part, it's just a bunch of redneck fishermen. Luke's account tells us, again, that I was talking about earlier, that Jesus, as he was passing out the Lord's Supper, a dispute among, uh, arose among them as to who was the greatest. Jesus is going to die tomorrow. Everything's pretty somber and serious. The last few hours on earth, and they're not thinking about serving each other, loving each other, all the things that he had taught them. Surely they could go back to the Sermon on the Mount and think about all the great things that Jesus taught us. But no, he, they are arguing about who is the greatest. They're fighting about it. Hey, I'm more gifted than you. I'm more loved than you. I'm more important than you. I got invited on the mountain and saw transfiguration. You didn't do that. You should be the one washing the feet. It's hard to imagine. I mean, we might think like this, but when's the last time you argued about it during communion? Right? This is not something that we're, this is crazy. Division and dispute and heartache. And people not getting the vision, this is the story of the disciples. One time we mentioned before, there's one time that they're going and Jesus is talking about seeking and saving the lost. They're talking about Samaritans. Jesus is giving his life for these people. And they're like, Jesus, maybe a better plan. 
Let's call down fire from heaven and burn them. Uh, no, Jesus replies that you don't, you don't get the point. So there they are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus shows them the secret to the kingdom of God. It's the, if you've watched the Matrix, the blue pill or the red pill decision. If you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the what? The least. If you want to be first, you've got to be what? You've got to be last. If you want to save your life, you have to what? Lose it. This is otherworldly. This does not make any common sense. It makes kingdom sense, though, and kingdom sense is always greater than common sense. This is what we see in Jesus, that he's holy. He's so different that the kingdom works on this inverted set of principles. I want to point out verse 3, too. If you flipped over to John 13, we'll spend the rest of the day there. In this scene, in verse 3, so powerful, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel and tied it around his waist. That first part just speaks so much to identity. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things his hands. The second part, and this is true to us, that, all, that, he, that, we, that he had come from God and was going back to God. His identity, I got nothing to earn I got nothing to prove and I got nothing to lose. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove, nothing to lose. And because of that, I don't have to like puff up my chest around my boys so they'll think I'm better than I am. I don't have, it doesn't matter what they think about me. I have no fear of man and Jesus at this point. He was not trying to impress anyone. Having such an... uh, This identity just confirmed in your own heart is the only way you're able to serve a group of fatheads like this. Is to know who you are and whose you are. Friend, can I ask you if you know that? Do you know who you are? A beloved son or daughter of of the king of kings? The one who opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence? The one who speaks and the storm stop? That you're a dearly loved son or daughter? That you're an heir to the throne, equipped with the power to accomplish the very same things that Jesus accomplished while he was here on earth, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, endowed with spiritual gifts, walking in God's favor. Do you know who you are? You know whose you are? You know where you're going? You know this life on earth is but just a, what does David say? It's a hand breath that's just here and it's gone. And then all of eternity stretched out for forever. This life is just so short. We just know who we are and whose we are, and we know where we're going. And because we know that, we can serve like Jesus with, with just scandalous humility. You know, some of the greatest in the kingdom of God will be people that you never heard of. People who don't have their own websites, never appear on Preachers with Sneakers, It's an actual Instagram account you can follow. I got some nice shoes on there. Not famous pastors or authors. I'm thankful for those guys. I'm thankful for their ministry now they've impacted me. I'm very thankful for them. But they're not going to have the head table when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. 
If the last become first, then some of the greatest in eternity will be missionaries who gave their entire lives to serve in the slums of Calcutta. They really will. And you'll get to heaven and you'll see them enshrined in all the crowns and jewels and everything that was bestowed upon them. And they're giving those things back in worship to Jesus. And you'll be like, man, I've never heard of this gal. Who, who was she? Calcutta, where's that at? People who run orphanages in Haiti. People who've adopted and cared for special need kids for the rest of their life. People who stayed in really difficult marriages, committed to serving their hard-to-love spouses for the long haul. Those are the people who are going to be at the head of the table. Because the least become the greatest. Speaking of humility, look at its antithesis here in his interaction with Peter in verse 6. You know, Peter's this guy that's, I'd say he's hard to love, but I identify with him in so many ways. He came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you're going to understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. They have this little interaction, and Jesus is teaching him something there. He's such an idiot here. Kids, don't say that word. Your mom said never say that word. He's so quick to get angry. He talks before he thinks. He's always saying stupid stuff. He loves to tell Jesus how he's going to serve him. This is not the first time. What Peter struggles with so much, why, why is it that Peter struggles so much with Jesus watching his feet and he continues to avoid it, avoid it, and then he overemphasizes it, then watch my body as well. Peter was a man's man, probably a self-made man, probably a really good fisherman. He's probably the oldest of the disciples. He has this sense of self-righteousness about him. Peter, why is it so hard for you to let Jesus serve you the same reason that a lot of men in here, it's so hard for us to let other people serve us? That I stand on my own two feet. I'm a self-made man. I made a name for myself. I don't need your help. Weak people are people that need help, and I don't need any help. And Peter says, Jesus, I don't need you to help me that way. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you need me more than you know. No, I don't need you, he, Peter replies. I'm going to take care of my own dirt. Peter, you can't, man. You, you can't. You need me. If getting to heaven was just a bunch of rules to obey, then some of us in here could do it, and we would feel so good about ourselves. But getting to heaven isn't about doing anything. It's about admitting that you're wicked and sinful and you need help. Psalms 149.4 says this, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. What does that mean? The proud don't get it. He adorns the humble with salvation. Any of you think that you're good enough for heaven will certainly never be there. You need Jesus more desperately than you think. This is why the religious elite, they were at such odds with Jesus because they thought they could earn the favor of God. Jesus was constantly showing them that they're not good enough. This is why Jesus told his disciples that not many wealthy people are actually going to make it into the kingdom of God. 
and not wealthy like in our understanding of wealthy that they made the Forbes list. No, everyone in America almost is wealthy. Certainly anyone that makes over $20,000 a year. Wealthy compared to global standards. Why is it hard for the wealthy to get into heaven? Because they're not humble. They think they've made it themselves. They brag on themselves. This is certainly a lesson in humility, but it's not just that. It's more than that. It's a lesson in salvation. Chapter 3, Jesus compares salvation to spiritual birth, if you remember that, in his conversation with Nicodemus. In chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, he compares it to spiritual, uh, spiritual living water. In chapter 6, it's spiritual bread that we would eat and be sustained. In chapter 13, it's spiritual cleansing. This is the conversations uh, he's having even here. It's not enough to do, Peter. You have to humble yourself and admit that you need a Savior. Our sin's like dirt, and we need to be cleansed. We need a bath, and the bath comes through the realization of our sin and repentance and trusting in the cross of Christ. And once we've had the bath, we don't need to bathe again. We just need our feet washed. We still sin. We still need to go to the Father and ask for forgiveness. As a matter of fact, this would be the rhythm of our life. And the more mature a Christian is, the more they live in this continual state of repentance. God revealing sin, us repenting of it, being clean, serving him, him revealing more sin. This is what First, uh, Second, Third John would call walking in the light. Peter finally submits to Christ and his feet are washed. Now, you know what? Peter does get a pretty bad rap. He tries to tell Jesus what to do on so many occasions. He thinks with his mouth, he says stupid stuff. But have you noticed this? Peter's teachable. In the end, Peter's teachable. How many situations do we see him say something stupid, be rebuked by this tender love of Jesus, and agree and go the right way? He repents and turns. Peter's teachable. Jesus would use him in some awesome ways. He's got some more teachable moments ahead. Even in the book of John, we'll get. This is the last point here. Jesus a leader serving his followers, the, creation, the creator serving the creation, but then this, the savior serving his betrayer. This is such scandalous humility. I mean, what it took to get on his knees and wash this feet of these disciples who were ungrateful. This is the next step above it as he spends his last moment serving the one who would betray him in just a few hours. This thought's a bit overwhelming to me. All week I thought about, man, what would I have done? I wonder what you would have done. I really do, and I want to think I would have washed and served. I really think I would have dumped that water on his head and then knocked him in the head with the basin. That's what, I think that's what I would have done to Judas. But not Jesus, man. He just loves in such an incredible way. Jesus knows all along that Judas is not going to repent, that he would never produce fruit, that he would be deceiving, taking money that could have been used for ministry. And then he would have been boasting about it. Remember in the, in the, in the last chapter how he rebukes Mary for putting the ointment on his feet. He said, we could have taken that and sold it and given the money to the poor. What that meant is Judas said, I would have taken that money and bought me a new Xbox. That's that's literally what he's saying. But he's trying to boast about it, act like he's all self-righteous. Judas has been nothing but dishonest. 
And Jesus still loves him and serves him. And it even says here, Jason made this point last week that he loved them to the end. Just this incredible love. The hard part, if I can be honest in my own heart, the hard part about Judas is we see what a bad dude Judas is. And it irritates me that Christ loves him. But me, on the other hand, I'm a pretty nice guy. Christ should love me, right? I'm mostly nice. I'm an all right dad. I lettered in high school, private school. Um, I open the door for my wife occasionally. I tip a dollar at Walgreens when they say, would you like to give a dollar to this thing? And I feel a little like, yeah, yes, I would. Jesus should serve me, but not Judas. As I was in the Word this week, I just thought, you know what? I'm more like Judas than I am like Jesus. I've stolen from Jesus. I've taken some of the things that he's entrusted to me to steward well, and I wasted them in my own pursuit of pleasure. I've dragged the name of Jesus into some pretty bad places. I've used his name in vain to gain leverage in situations with other people. I've been unteachable. Jesus closes with this dramatic scene in verse 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that if that you also should do, look at this, as I have done for, to you. As I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master or a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Look at that phrase, that, that you would do it as I have done it to you. Not what I've done to you. That's why the ultimate picture of serving is not us washing each other's feet. I mean, some, we got a lot of guests here seeing baptisms. You would have been freaked out if on the entrance here we were down there washing your feet. Like, what kind of cult is this? We're not going to do that. That's why I didn't say to go do what I've done, but, but as I've done. What is the position of lowliness is what he's asking. What is the position of submission? What is the position of honor? What is the position of humility? Then go take that one. Our faith is supposed to be extremely practical. How we treat people, how we spend time, what we value is predicated on our view of God. And for some of us, Christianity is just this philosophical idea. and It's not this life-transforming truth. Even probably like Judas, we might love to argue the finer points of eschatology, of soteriology, but we have a really hard time just getting our hands dirty serving people. It's not enough to have a theology of Christ's humility, friends. You've got to choose to be humble. Not enough theology to understand the grace of God. You've got to be gracious. That's why he says that you would be blessed if you do these things. This quote by David Well sums it up well, and I'm almost done. Humility has nothing to do with depreciating ourselves and our gifts in ways that we know to be untrue. 
Even humble attitudes can be masks of pride. Humility is that freedom from ourself which enables us to be in positions in which we have neither recognition nor importance, neither power nor visibility, and even experience deprivation and yet have joy and delight. It's the freedom that we are not in the center of the universe, knowing that we're not in the center of the universe, not even the center of our own private universe. This is what the gospel does for us. You see it in a good marriage with the husband always preferring the wife. Whatever you want, babe. What can I do for you, babe? How can I serve for you, babe? And then the, and then the, and then the wife responding in the same way. No, 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 it's, it's whatever you want. No, 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 let's go where you want. No, 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 I'll be glad to get out of bed and turn the fan on because we forgot after I'm all cozy and warm. I'll be glad. Sorry, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a conversation Ashley and I ever have, ever. <laughs> do you see? This is what, this, in, in the church community, you know, it looks like it's, it's like us considering others more important than ourselves and us just preferring them. Oh, no, no, it's not, it's not, think about this in your missional community. It's not about what I want, it's about, no, no, whatever, whatever's going to prefer you. What can honor you? How can I serve you? How can I choose the posture of humility to care for you, to serve you, to take care of your needs? The, the disciples eventually got this. Everyone but John, John died a martyr's death bringing the gospel to cultures that just five years ago, these people, they hated. And yet they go and give their life for them to bring them the gospel. It's, it's incredible. Radical humility. And their disciples, the people that they invested in and turned to, those were the people that when everyone was fleeing Europe because of the plague, there was a long line of Christians that were in just, they were going to die. They were going in and serving them, contracting the disease and dying themselves. And what did the emperor say? Hey, y'all check out those Christians. Why in the world are they doing that? It was because of their love that the gospel spread, not because of their skills in speaking. Friends, the need is urgent. The need is urgent. Let's not be deceived chasing side shows. A person every second dies without knowing Christ. Every second. It's not time to debate the lesser things. The greatest apologetic we'll have in this world is living with kingdom sense. Sacrificial love, sacrificial humility, humility as Jason talked about last week. Second, I want to remind you that the gospel is still good news. It is great news. It reminds us daily of our depravity and of our value, that our sin was so incredibly heinous that God himself had to leave heaven and die in our place. But Hebrews says that we were so loved that it was joy for him to do that. Let me close just with this question. Which one are you? You like Peter? A bit brash, speak before you think. Always telling Jesus how he needs to serve you. But you're repentant and teachable. Maybe you're like John. We didn't talk about John too much. He was the one so close to Jesus. 
always right next to Jesus. He was the only disciple at the cross. He's the one that Jesus entrusted to take care of his mom. Maybe you're like John, knowing the heart of Jesus like no other. When they wanted to know who was betraying him, they were saying, hey, John, ask Jesus. John knew he was right next to Jesus, willing to stick with him in the most difficult circumstances. Maybe you're like Judas. You're part of the religious scene, but your heart is so far from God. You're willing to betray him for a price. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. Maybe there's a price that you're willing to betray Jesus for. That be it sex or money or fame or comfort or control. But there's a price. Or maybe you're like Jesus. Just have a posture of serving. Radical love. Loving your enemies. Loving your betrayer. And loving them to the end. Let me pray for us. God, I love you. I thank you for your word. It's living and active. It's powerful. It's decisive. Able to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit. That's what you do in us. In our minds and in our hearts, even now, there's some lies that we believe and there's some truth intermixed there. And Holy Spirit, you come and you're able, to, you're able to divide the bad away and illuminate the good. I pray you do that in our minds and hearts even now. Lord, in a group this large, I know there's people who, they've never stepped across a line of faith. They're in this room right now. They've been kicking the tires on this Christianity thing a long time. And Lord, I know your spirit is calling them to take a step across the line of faith. Friends, I encourage you to do that today. Me and a couple other pastors will be in the back people on the prayer team, we'd love to pray with you. Maybe your prayer is not about salvation. It's really just, Lord, help me figure out how to serve these people in my life in the best way. Lord, help me to choose humility. Lord, I pray as we worship through obedience, Lord, show us what our step is. Pray that we've got the courage and boldness to do it. Lord, thank you for the cross. How you saved a wretch like me. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take some time at your seats and pray. Prayer team and the pastors will be in the back. Phil's going to lead us in another song. Then we'll conclude.